Well, howdy, everybody. This is Cody Turner back at it on the mic. Let me just briefly address the billions of people that are tuning in. The pod life, folks, is far from over. Let me assure you. In fact, I'm just getting started. There's a bunch of great guests coming up on the show, and there's a great guest in this episode. In this episode, I speak with my fellow colleague, Eno Agoli. Eno is a first-year PhD student in philosophy at the University of Connecticut, and his main research interests lie in the philosophy of language and logic. In this episode, Eno and I discuss two things. First, we have a conversation about a view in logic known as logical nihilism, which Eno is increasingly interested in and which I knew nothing about prior to this episode. And then after that, we talk about a paper that Eno wrote on the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is one of the most famous philosophers of the 20th century. There is a paradox that is contained in Wittgenstein's first book, and Eno's paper addresses this paradox. I don't want to give too much of a preamble here, but I will say that much of our discussion centers around the notion of nonsense, in particular the concept of linguistic nonsense, and how such nonsense can appear meaningful. So what you're about to hear, folks, is two people trying to make sense of nonsense. Now, I know what you're thinking. What a nonsensical thing to do. But I submit to you that Eno has some fascinating things to say about the topic of nonsense, meaning that the only sensible thing to do, ladies and gentlemen, is listen to this podcast. So without further ado, I present to you, Eno Agoli. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network. A place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. I'm here with my fellow colleague, Eno Agoli. Uh, thanks for coming on the pod, man. I appreciate this. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I read one of your papers on entitled How Sheer Nonsense Can Appear Meaningful uh, on Ludwig Wittgenstein's philosophy. Before we get there, I thought you could just introduce yourself and explain what got you into philosophy and what some of your main philosophical interests are. Yeah, so, uh, well, I'm Anagoli, as you said. I'm from Greece. I just started my PhD at the University of Connecticut. Um, so what started me? What got me into philosophy? I'm, what ignited that philosophical spark? I, I can't remember, <laughs> to be honest, because because I developed an interest in philosophy from very early on. When I was yeah. like 16, I pretty much knew that philosophy was my thing. I suppose, looking back, that it must have been my interest in, in literature at the beginning, which led me to uh, literary criticism. So mostly French stuff like Derrida, mm. Roland Barthes, all of that continental philosophy uh, that, that cares deeply about literature. Mm. Uh, so that was the beginning. And then uh, I slowly moved towards analytic philosophy. Uh, I should say that uh, meeting Mitchell Green mm. uh, at, at the time, we're talking about 2011, I went to, to UVA for a summer. And I met Mitch Green there. He's a professor there. here at UConn. Right, and, and he was a professor of philosophy back then at the University of Virginia. Mm. And I met him, and he was doing a kind of seminar um, in philosophy uh, intended for high school teachers. So mm -hmm. it was a seminar given by philosophy professors at UVA 
uh, training uh, high school teachers on how to teach philosophy to high school students. Right. And I went there and I was sort of a, an unofficial note taker. And that's when I learned about, you know, analytic philosophy and what that is. I didn't know anything. Oh, that's, I didn't know uh, that. That's cool. Yeah. Do you have a general preference for, just since you brought it up, for analytic philosophy over continental philosophy? So just for the listeners, analytic philosophy and continental philosophy are conceptualized as like the two main kinds of philosophy. Um, it's debatable whether there's clear distinctions between the two. Right. Continental is a little more literary analytics more scientific there are a bunch of other things that you could say to distinguish the two but do you uh, do you prefer continental over analytic or are you happy that you're doing analytic now because analytic is the philosophy that's predominantly taught at universities in in the in the west or i guess in america in america analytic yeah yes that's right uh Primarily, yeah, I would say primarily in the Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, there are some non-English-speaking countries like uh, Portugal, Spain, that have a more anal analytic bent, and maybe Scandinavia as well. Uh, but yeah, continental is definitely more predominant across the world. Uh, oh, okay. And in the minds of people as well. When people think of philosophy nowadays, they tend to think of continental philosophy. They think of... Uh, uh, Nietzsche, Sartre, I don't know, this Heidegger, these kinds of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly prefer analytic philosophy. Uh, definitely, uh, when as it compares to people like Derrida or Foucault, I think these people were not just uh, philosophers that I disagree with. They're thinkers that have very fundamental. Uh, objections against. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that uh, philosophers like Derrida write in a way that is uh, intentionally obscure mm -hmm. and also it's not committed to values like truth and absolute truth. Uh, they're too relativistic for, for my uh, taste, so <laughs> I, I tend to dislike them uh, for methodological reasons in addition to whatever they say. Mm, okay, so where Say something about your educational history. So you, you're from Greece, and then you got your master's at UChicago? No, I got my first degree at UChicago. So I got oh, okay. my bachelor's degree at UChicago, then I moved for a master's degree back to Europe. I did it at the University of Cambridge, um, and now I'm here doing a PhD. Yeah. What motivated you to apply to UConn? Well, uh, my interest in logic, basically. I was, uh, this is like the logic center of the world. For those listening, not of the world, but it's right. heavy with logic. Yeah, especially non-classical logic. If you're talking about non-classical logic, it's certainly a very nice place to study. Uh, but also language, philosophy of language, I'm interested in that too. And we have a lot of people here that are uh, pretty predominant in philosophy of language. And also we have a great linguistics department as well. So that helps. Do you have an idea as to what you want to do for your PhD? Not what you particularly want to focus on within philosophy of language or logic? Not yet. I mean, I, I do, I certainly have a relatively recent interest in logical nihilism, and we can talk about that if you'd like later. I want to, yeah. Um, I'm not even is, sure what that refers to. Uh, yes, I mean, simply put, the idea is that there is no logic. There are no universal uh, logical rules. Uh, that's a pretty radical idea, and on the, uh, like, the... Uh, it just seems crazy if you put it like that, but if you start thinking about it, you can 
see that maybe there is something to it. But anyway, so this is one direction I see my, my studies going towards. Another direction is phenomena that have to do with reference, such as proper names, um, the act of reference, what does it mean for people to refer to things in the first place, what kind of relationship is that? It seems quite mysterious. Could we take the logical nihilism thing now, just since it came up? Could you say a few more words about that? Sure. I mean, this is, as I said, a recent, relatively recent interest, so I, I don't know if I have a lot to say about this, but um, th there are certain things that we call in logic uh, laws, logical laws. I don't know how well-versed your uh, listeners are, but those would be things like... Uh, Assume they know nothing. Great. I don't so, want to demean my listeners. They're very, they're very smart people, all three of them. <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> so, so those would be things like uh, the excluded middle. That's taken to be a law of logic that says that uh, A and not A is always true no matter what A is. It could be any sentence you'd like. Uh, cats have five legs, right? Uh, either cats have five legs or they don't. And the idea is that this always comes out to be true, no matter what the sentence is. Um, now, there are many w uh, reasons why you might doubt that. Uh, and that is, it doesn't come from logical nihilism. There, there are arguments against the excluded middle in the philosophical tradition, beginning with the liar's paradox. Uh, that's taken to be a case where you can't assert the law of excluded middle. It doesn't, if you put, if you put in for A the liar's sentence, the whole thing doesn't come out to be true. It comes out to be something else, something strange. Maybe it's a gap, maybe it's uh, who knows what. Um, so that's a case in which the law of excluded middle fails. Another case is when you have um, infinite sentences. Mm -hmm. um, how could you know that this law holds for a bunch of uh, sentences, a group of sentences that's infinite? Mm. Maybe you couldn't. So uh, intuitionism denies this uh, famously because intuitionists have worries about the infinite, whether the infinite is knowable or not. Would, uh, the, would the law of non-contradiction be another logical law that most people would endorse? It can't be the case that both P yeah. and not P is true, but I know there are philosophers here like J.C. Beale, he's a professor here that denies the law of non-contradiction. He thinks that uh, you can make sense of contradictions and this law isn't necessarily true. Exactly. I don't know if he would be committed to logical nihilism. He would not. I mean, I've talked to him about logical nihilism and we had some interesting conversations. Uh, now, let me start by saying that he uh, rejects this uh, law of logic, the, the, the law telling you that if you get a contradiction, anything follows from that. This is known as explosion. Mm. He rejects this law uh, based on the liar's paradox. He thinks that the liar's paradox and related paradoxes are enough to show you that uh, this doesn't hold for anything whatsoever. Um, but he's not, as you say, a logical nihilist. So what is he? <laughs> he thinks that there are some laws of logic which hold, even though explosion and the excluded middle aren't right. uh, for him. For example, and this is, seems to be a very basic law of logic, um, conjunction illumination. Right? Mm. If you say... Um, conjunction just being an and statement. And, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to give an example of the sword, the sky is blue and roses are red. 
If this is true, and it is, then you can conclude simply that the sky is blue. You don't need the whole thing, you can conclude one of the two conjuncts. Mm. Uh, this seems as obvious as it can get, right? It seems hard to, to deny that. But you can come up with cases in which that comes out to be false. Um, can I give you an example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't think of one. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's going to be a little bit of a contrived example, but like the case of the liar paradox, uh, that seems contrived as well. I mean, you have a strange sentence. The liar sentence is a strange one. It's sort of a self-referential sentence. So there is an air of, of uh, artificiality there. Um, and it's the same with the example I'm going to give you, which is the following. Um, Suppose I say the sentence, uh, this sentence that I'm speaking, that I'm saying right now, mm -hmm. is before, comes before the word and, and the sentence that I'm saying right now comes after the word and. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Uh, I think I got it. <laughs> everything I said is true. Right. Right. But now take the conjuncts by themselves. All you have, let's take the left conjunct, the first sentence I said. All you have is the sentence I'm saying right now comes before the word and. Mm -hmm. Period. That was the sentence. Yeah. That's the sentence. And this is false because there is no word and in this whole sentence. Right, because now you're just considering the conjunct in isolation. Right. So this is a case oh, where conjunction... Oh, that's trippy. <laughs> <laughs> Clicked. <laughs> Keep going. Right, so this is a case where it seems like the conjunction elimination fails. And you can yeah. come up with contrived examples like that. The idea being that uh, there is no single theory that uh, includes one and only one or maybe a, a class of laws that are universal. You can just always find counterexamples where the laws don't hold? Precisely, yes. So does, does logical nihilism entail nihilism about rationality in general and about philosophy? Because doesn't reasoning at least implicitly utilize these logical laws? I mean, how do we even reason if these basic tools of reasoning aren't necessarily universally true? Uh, sure. So... That's a good question. And as I said before, I, I dislike the French because they're not committed to absolutism about truth. They're relativists, right? They don't think that there are universal standards that hold us accountable. So how could I support logical nihilism? Uh, so the idea uh, is that there are no universal laws. Uh, there is no single set of laws that is common in every theory, in quantum mechanics, in organic chemistry, in epistemology, whatever. But that doesn't mean that each theory doesn't have its own rules uh, and laws, right? The excluded middle isn't a law of logic, we want to say, but that's not to say that the excluded middle doesn't hold in... Uh, uh, ordinary arithmetic. It does. It clearly does. But that's a, a law, not of logic, not prescribed by this ethereal thing called logic, but prescribed by the theory in question, namely ordinary arithmetic. Okay, so the laws can apply to particular domains of inquiry, but we just can't say that they're universal. 
but then and but that doesn't seem to be nihilistic then it doesn't not wouldn't nihilism say that there just are no laws you're not trying to get rid of the laws you still want to retain the laws you just want to deny their universality absolutely yes okay that's it so that's the nihilistic part that they aren't universal uh, but not that they don't exist that would be uh, just plainly false because there are many laws intra-theoretical laws there are laws in uh, arithmetic, right? Mm -hmm. There are many laws in arithmetic. You you can't divide by zero, let's say. That's a law of arithmetic. Mm -hmm. uh, but no one would say that that's a law of logic. Mm -hmm. Now, it might seem like the law of the excluded middle is a law of logic. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where nihilism steps in and says, no, no, that's an illusion. It's not really. It's a law of your theory. And it seems maybe that it's a universal law simply because it occurs in many theories. Many theories have it. Yeah, I mean, I can see how it's nihilistic because it does seem like when we're just engaging in ordinary discourse, we're implicitly assuming that these laws are universal. Mm. So does it also entail that um, any theories that you derive via these logical laws are not also universal? They can't be universalized either because they're based upon laws which can't be universalized? Does that make, or does that inference not hold? Uh, yeah, I, I would like does, does the nihilism seep into all kinds of other domains of inquiry too, because these other domains utilize these logical laws? Yeah, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, that follows, what you said follows, but I don't see that as being problematic, because we don't want the laws of arithmetic to hold for, I don't know, quantum physics, or we don't want the laws of quantum physics to hold for organic <clears throat> chemistry, right? So we don't want to apply laws of one theory to laws of another theory. And that's okay, I take it. Yeah, but I'm wondering, like, there's this concept of the unity of knowledge, right? Uh -huh. Where we, we conceptualize these distinctions between these different academic disciplines. There's math, there's a science building, but presumably... These, don't, these distinctions don't map onto reality. You know, in reality, all knowledge is unified. It's all unified. And these are just arbitrary distinctions that we're, that we're using to, to study reality, right? But it's not like there's like a science wing of reality and a math wing of reality. But we, term, we tend to think in those terms because there's a science building here and a math building there. But ultimately, it seems like everything is unified and connected. Does logical nihilism kind of reject that basic picture of the unity of knowledge? Does that question make sense? Uh, it does, and I'm not sure what to say on behalf of nihilism here. I'm not sure about the uh, consequences it has about the unity of knowledge. But I would doubt this um, idea of unity of knowledge um, simply because it just isn't true that our knowledge is unified. And I'll give you a simple example. It seems to me like the knowledge we gain from um, uh, physics, Newtonian physics, you, we don't even need to talk about quantum physics or anything, simple Newtonian physics that we learn in middle school, uh, we, we gain that knowledge from experience, right? Uh, juxtapose that with mathematical knowledge. No one really has any direct experience with number two or number four, yet we all know certain facts about two and four. We know that if we add them together, they give you six and so on. So mathematical knowledge doesn't seem to be empirical in, uh, based on experience that is in the same way that um, uh, Newtonian physics is. 
So it seems like you have two genuinely different kinds of knowledge, mm-hmm. what in philosophy is known as a priori and a posteriori. Right. Okay, so just because there are different methods of attaining knowledge that would push back against the idea that it's all unified. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, this concept of logical nihilism fascinates me, and I definitely would like to learn more about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do it has wanna... been recently supported. It's, it's a very recent idea. There have been a mm. couple of papers in the last three or five years. Uh, so it's, it's Oh, it's up and coming. It's a new on the thing. rise. Yeah. Nihilism on the rise. Right. And you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned JC, and JC... Yeah. Uh, he has been pushing for a very austere picture of logic. Mm. And he has been arguing against classical logic. Classical logic being this theory of logic that involves a lot of laws. A right. lot of laws, uh, classical logic says, are logical laws. Mm. And JC and many other non-classical logicians, they push for a move uh, downwards, for, for a more minimalistic picture of logic. But as I see it, nihilism... Uh, presents at least a skeptical challenge in the sense that, well, if you're willing to go as far down as what JC proposes, why not go Farther. completely down? You yeah, know, why take not the whole go trip down. Nile, yes, that's mm. the thought. Do you want to move into Wittgenstein? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, so the paper I read is on Ludwig Wittgenstein, arguably the most important philosopher of the 20th century. I don't think it's a stretch to say that. Um, so I guess maybe introduce Wittgenstein before we jump into the specifics of your paper. Um, just who the man was, what he focused on, what contributions he made to philosophy, generally speaking. Yeah. Again, Wittgenstein is very impenetrable, even to professional philosophers who study him. So yeah. I think it's, it's going to be hard trying to make him publicly accessible to people who aren't necessarily privy to philosophy. But um, I guess will and mostly you will try our best. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, plus I don't think what I will suggest is helpful for understanding Wittgenstein. We're going to be talking about nonsense. <laughs> We're literally going to be talking about a paper on nonsense. Right, exactly. Uh, but but, but there, there yeah. are a few things well, that one can say about Wittgenstein, about his life, let's say. Yeah, there so, we go. Uh, yeah, so I, 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 I'm not sure if I will give a complete biographical uh, yeah, you don't, picture of Yeah, well, we should start with his parents' life if we really want to. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Wittgenstein is this very curious figure in philosophy in that he had a very anomalous career, very non-standard career. He, he was uh, Austrian, he was an Austrian Jew, a very wealthy Austrian Jew. He went to study in the UK... Um, uh, he, went, he studied engineering, I think, aeronautical engineering, something of that sort. And then he became interested in the foundations of mathematics. And it happened, it so happened that at that time there was a revolution in the foundations of mathematics, um, in philosophy and in mathematics. So uh, he slowly moved towards logic and then moved towards philosophy proper when he went to Cambridge uh, to study under Russell. Uh, he didn't apply to get there. He just showed up, and Russell took him on. Uh, oh, really? I yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and and he never <laughs> and he never actually wrote anything while he was there. I mean, he he took notes and classes with Russell and I presume other professors there, but he was never officially examined or anything of that sort. And then the the war, the First World War, broke out, and he went to the. 
uh, he, he went to Europe to fight for um, a few years, and while he was in the trenches, he, he wrote the Tractatus, his... Uh, First his, major work. Right, he, and I think the only one that he actually published. Uh, During and, his life. Right, and I think he uh, submitted that as some kind of dissertation to Cambridge, and of course it was accepted by Russell, <laughs> Bertrand Russell, that is. So um, did Russell just immediately recognize that this human being was a genius? That's the thought, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and Wittgenstein uh, made a lot of significant contributions as a student. He sort of made suggestions to Russell that heavily impacted Russell's work later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, so he was regarded to be a genius. Russell wrote an introduction, a preface rather, to, to the Tractatus. Um, Didn't he have a lot of problems with it? Uh, Russell? Uh, no, Wittgenstein. He had a lot of problems yeah. with Russell's intro. Right, but he also had problems Be- with pretty much anyone who tried to interpret his work. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> no one understood. Uh, right. The only person he truly admired, whose opinion he truly admired, was Frege, Gottlob Frege, mm. uh, in, in Germany, who was a Another. mathematician and secondarily a philosopher. Another major player in the, right. the history of philosophy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he valued his work. On the other hand, Frege didn't like the Tractatus, and Wittgenstein was very sad about that. But he was, yeah, he was very self-confident to say the least. So he, he was not deterred by that. He still thought that he solved all the problems of philosophy in that book. And, you know, he left <laughs> Cambridge. Uh, he retired from philosophy, right? Because yeah. he thought he had solved all the philosophical problems. On to the next one. Yes. Exactly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and and he went to Austria to, to lead a bucolic life. He was in uh, some village of Austria teaching as an elementary school uh, teacher, yeah. um, and then he had some issues there. He reportedly he uh, he beat a student um, there, at, but but that, <coughs> that was not the reason why he left. The reason why he left is that. Somehow he came to the realization that maybe he didn't really solve all the problems of philosophy, so he went back to Cambridge. There was still some work to do. Right. He had to return to the ivory tower. <laughs> right, right. Right, so in the paper that uh, I read of yours, you talk about the Tractus, right? So yeah. uh, there's people regard Wittgenstein as uh, there are two different periods of his thought. There's the early Wittgenstein, and then there's the later Wittgenstein, where when he returned back to Cambridge. And so first we're going to be talking about the early Wittgenstein. So if I could just set up your paper and correct me if I'm wrong. So there's this basic apparent paradox in the Tractus. On the one hand, it seems like he's making metaphysical claims about reality. But on the other hand, he articulates this theory of meaning in the Tractus according to which metaphysical claims are impossible to state. So it seems like he's making metaphysical claims, but he has this theory of meaning which says it's impossible to make metaphysical claims. That's a seeming paradox. Is that a correct articula- articulation there? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I just kind of want to creep, creep up on this. First, what is metaphysics? Sure. What is metaphysics? <laughs> just for the listeners. Yeah, so metaphysics would be uh, any claim about the nature of reality. Um, and there's a reason why it's called metaphysics. When, you, when we think about physics, uh, it seems like physics makes claims about reality, and that's true. But physics doesn't seem to me to make any claims about the nature of reality. For example, if a physicist tells you everything that exists 
is what I study. Or alternatively, everything that exists can be explained by whatever I study. That seems to be a meta-claim, uh, and that's why it's a metaphysical claim. Um, it's, it's a claim about the nature of reality. And I can give you the best way to explain metaphysics is just by giving examples of metaphysical yeah. questions. Uh, personal identity over time is mm -hmm. one of them. What makes you the same person from one time to the other? Mm -hmm. Is it the fact that you have the same body or the fact that you have the same memories? Uh, do we have free will? Are minds physical things or are they some other kind of substance completely different from, from matter? Um, all of these are metaphysical questions. So what are some of the apparent metaphysical claims that Wittgenstein makes in the tractus? Yeah, so a lot. He, he starts, the, the book is divided into seven chapters, roughly. Um, uh, the first two are um, basically metaphysic, metaphysics. Uh, he says things like, there exist simple objects. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to me like a metaphysical claim in the sense that it tells you what exists out there in the world and mm -hmm. that it has a certain kind of nature or structure, mm -hmm. that it's simple. Or he says that uh, there is such a thing as logical form or um, uh, that there is such a thing as propositions and propositions relate in a certain specific way to facts right. in the world. All of these are metaphysical claims. Right. He's making assertions about the way that the world actually is. Exactly. But then he has this theory of meaning according to which it's impossible to make any metaphysical claims. Mm -hmm. What's his theory of meaning, in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah, so, yes, in a nutshell, because <laughs> a nutshell. That, that takes a long time to explain, but this is the so-called picture theory of meaning. Mm. Uh, it tells you that, and it's a very intuitive picture of meaning. I mean, most of us have uh, that in mind when we think of language, and, and Wittgenstein was trying to do justice to that. So the idea is that uh, sentences, when I utter sentences, um, I am, whatever comes out of my mouth relates to whatever those sentences mean in just the same way as pictures relate to the pictured thing. Mm -hmm. So um, imagine if I have two toy cars, all right, mm -hmm. and I put the first one, let's say the first one is red and the second one is green, I put the first one uh, ahead of the second one, I take that to picture, in quotation marks, uh, the fact that a certain car was ahead of another car I'm talking about. Mm. So how does this picturing work? Well, it works because I rely on what Wittgenstein calls the spatial form. I'm using a spatial arrangement between my toy cars. Mm. I'm using that to tell you something about the spatial arrangement uh, of the real cars. So I tell you, this car stands for that real car, and this toy car stands for that other uh, real car, mm. and I am putting them in a certain spatial arrangement. Mm. And I tell you, this spatial arrangement that you see is the same as the real case. Uh, and he, he takes that basic idea, and he moves to language, and he tells you, look, I don't have spatial form to rely on in language. I can't tell you, here's a car, and I show you the car, and here's another car. Right. So what I have is only words. So what I uh, use is not space, 
but rather it's I abstract. This other thing called logical form. I rely on that. I mm. rely on logical form. As opposed to spatial form. Exactly. I rely on logical form, and this logical form is the glue that ties together the words. I say, this word stands for this object, this word stands for that object, and I put them together by means of the logical form as a glue, and that's how... Uh, those create, those stem for a fact, because the objects that they stem for also stand in the same logical relation to each other. So he would be against logical nihilism, presumably, oh, right? absolutely, yeah. Because he thinks there are these actual logical forms out there, which again seems like he's making some metaphysical claim about what, what actually yeah. exists. Absolutely, yeah. So how precisely does that theory of meaning, which you just articulated, entail that it's impossible to make metaphysical claims. Where, where's the link there? Right. The idea in what I said, I was talking about logical form. Right. Uh, but how could I talk about logical form if logical form is exactly what I need in order to make statements? Think about the toy car example. I can describe to you uh, what was going on in the toy car uh, in case by using words. So instead of putting one car next to the other to show you that one car was behind the other, mm -hmm. I can say that in words. I can tell you the first car was behind the other. Mm -hmm. There, I took the spatial form and I turned it into words. Mm -hmm. I made it a part of my, of my objects, the objects that I use in order to picture. Mm -hmm. But how can you take the logical form and make it a word? You can't. Why not? So, th think back uh, at the toy car example. What, what stuff do I have available to me? I only have toy cars, mm -hmm. right? Uh, when I create a sentence, mm -hmm. I say, car A was behind car B. Right. I don't have two things available. I have three things. I have taken the spatial form, and I've turned it into an object. Right. I say, is behind, the word is behind stands for the, so, uh, for the spatial form itself. Okay, so, the, is, so you're misrepresenting actual reality now by doing that? By, by, by taking the spatial form and turning it into an object? I am not. I'm not misrepresenting. Uh, I am using another form mm -hmm. uh, which makes, it a, which makes it possible for me to take a, a lower kind of form, like spatial form, and turn it into an object. But this, this biggest kind of form, the logical form, is the maximum level. You can't get past that. You can't take that form and turn it into an object in order to talk about it, just like I did with the spatial form. Oh, in the case okay. of the toy car example, I took the spatial relation that existed it's starting between to click, yeah. the toy cars, I took it, and I created a word that stands for the relation itself. So you can understand that spatial form, you transform it into a logical form, but right. you can't understand that logical form by transforming that into an even higher order form. Exactly. That higher order form doesn't exist. Exactly. Okay. So when I talk about logical form, when I want to tell you what the logical form is, just like I tell you what the spatial form of the, of the toy cars is, mm -hmm. I can't use language again, because language uses the logical form. Right. It would be like using toy cars again to talk about the spatial arrangement, but I can't oh. do that. I can't use another toy car to stand for the spatial arrangement. 
right? I need to go back to a higher kind of form. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So originally, I thought the idea, <clears throat> prior to reading any Wittgenstein, I always was under the intuition that language couldn't really say anything true about reality. But my basic intuition there was just that reality is kind of irreducibly particular and complex, whereas language is inherently abstract. So the moment you apply a concept to something in reality, you're abstracting away from the actual thing itself, right? Like you're putting it into a category and you're therefore fundamentally doing an injustice to its irreducible particularity. So in that sense, because of just the abstractness of language, you can never really hook on to, to reality. So like, but just that was kind of my intuitive way of making yeah, sense yeah. of how language can't hook on to reality before. Yeah. But yeah, that, that clicked for me for what you just said in terms of this theory of meaning. Um, okay, so we, we, have, we have this apparent paradox. Right. So one way of, well, I guess, what's one way of resolving this paradox? So one way of resolving, so, so the whole problem is that Wittgenstein tells you all about logical form, but what he says about the logical form entails that you can't talk about the logical form. So how the exactly. heck does he do that? Uh, the traditional way of resolving that is to say, yeah, you know, what he says is strictly speaking nonsense, it cannot be stated, but uh, metaphorically or in some kind of way it, it conveys what's to be conveyed. It conveys this truth of logic and metaphysics somehow. We don't know how, but it conveys those things. Okay, so basic, so basic idea is... One way to resolve this paradox, again, the paradox is he seems to be making metaphysical claims. I just want to make sure the listeners don't get lost. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to make of sure course. I don't get lost. Of course, yeah. <laughs> he, he seems to be making metaphysical claims. He's this theory of meaning which implies that it's impossible to make metaphysical claims. One way to resolve that is just to deny that he's actually making metaphysical statements. Or that it actually yeah. states metaphysical things. Precisely. Um, and then there are, there are different ways to spell that out. Right. So like you say, I'm, I'm quoting you here. By the way, you're a very clear writer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you were a very good writer when I was reading you. Admirably clear. Um, so you say, quote, Wittgenstein does, does say that TLP, the tractus, is nonsense, but this leaves open the question of whether metaphysical facts, in some sense, exist, but simply cannot be stated, or whether such facts do not exist at all, full stop. So there are kind of two ways to interpret this resolution to the paradox. There's this realist option mm -hmm. and there's this anti-realist option. Right. So, and this is where we're going to start getting into different conceptions of nonsense. Yeah. What, what's the realist interpretation? So the realist interpretation is what I said pretty much. It's this guy's who, the, the orthodox interpretation of the Tractatus that tells you, um, look, you can't state those things, but these things exist. And the best you can hope to do is somehow convey them in the, in the way uh, the Tractatus does or Wittgenstein does. Uh, that's the realist camp. The anti-realist camp tells you, well, wait a minute, it, it, nonsense, there's only one kind of nonsense and it's the usual kind. It's, it's, it's the lack of sense, the lack of meaning, and that's all. Mm -hmm. Now that might still imply that there are things out there that you can't state mm -hmm. or that simply there aren't. Anything that exists out there can be stated in some way. Mm -hmm. um, both of these options are available. The anti-realist takes the second option. That is the option that uh, since you can't talk about something, 
It just doesn't exist. Right. So I feel like some listeners are going to be confused about this distinction between con- conveying metaphysical facts and stating metaphysical facts. So the realist wants to say, yeah, the tractus is nonsense. It's not actually stating any metaphysical facts, but it's in some sense conveying metaphysical facts, right? It's, it's, it certainly appears like he's saying something substantive about metaphysics. Yeah. And so how do you make how do you draw this distinction between conveying metaphysical facts and still not being able to state it? And the realist draws this distinction between these two different kinds of nonsense, right? So there's what right. w- sheer nonsense and then combinatorial nonsense. And the realist. Says the realist, yes, right. Exactly. So the realist draws this distinction. There's combinatorial nonsense. There's sheer nonsense. Mm-hmm. The anti-realist says, no, there's no such thing as combinatorial nonsense. It's just sheer nonsense. Uh-huh. That's the only kind of nonsense. Right. So what, what is this distinction between these two kinds of nonsense? You sure. can spell that out. Uh, the sheer nonsense is, again, the working idea that we have of nonsense. It's the, some kind of lack of meaning. It's a failure to assign or find meaning in signs mm-hmm. or in, in words, in, in sounds that someone produces. So just like word vomit. Yeah. Like That. Jabberwocky or I don't know. That. So, so everyone agrees on that, both sides. Right. Now, the, the whole bone of contention is whether there exists such a thing as combinatorial nonsense. Let me give you an example of that. Mm-hmm. So if I say Plato-Aristotle, mm. just that, mm-hmm. Plato-Aristotle. Right. Now, the thought is that there's no sense in that, uh, not because there just isn't any. The problem seems to be that I'm using two words, that individually have a meaning, but somehow right. the meanings don't fit together nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't, the idea is, uh, you can't have two names in a sentence. The Two names don't make a sentence. Mm-hmm. That seems to be one logical law. Probably this is grounded by some metaphysical law that tells you two objects together don't make a fact. To have a fact, you need an object and a property. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea. Uh, and the thought is that combinatorial nonsense can convey logical laws by breaking them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you break a law, so I tell you Plato, Aristotle, and I ask you, why is this nonsense? Uh, if you try to work through why this is nonsense, you'll come to the realization that, oh, there exists this law that tells me that I can't put two names together. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, so you say, just quoting you mm-hmm. and paraphrasing what you just said, so another example of combinatorial nonsense would just be the phrase, as you say in the paper, is a chair, is four-legged, right? So this has a whiff of sense to it in the way that the just word vomit, sheer nonsense, yeah. doesn't. Yeah. But it still doesn't seem sensical, sensible. But you say, quote, the crucial realist thought is that by recognizing that is a chair, is four-legged, breaks such a law. Someone might come to see or glean that law from an otherwise meaningless sentence. It is exactly by combining meaningful components in a way that breaks metaphysical laws that combinatorial nonsense makes perspicuous and thus conveys metaphysical truths. So something seems right, there seems to be a whiff of sense, and you say, well, why doesn't this make complete sense? And in attempting to understand why it doesn't make complete sense, you can arrive at what the metaphysical law is, that it's breaking. So in that sense, it can convey metaphysical truths, even though it doesn't state it, and even though it is nonsense, right. which, which goes back to one way to resolve the, mm-hmm. the puzzle. Right. Um, and the anti-realists on the other side of the aisle think this is, 
this combinatorial nonsense is just sheer nonsense. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what they say. But they have a reason for saying that. The context principle. Exactly. So what, are, yeah, so what is the context principle? So that's a, a simple principle that we all seem to agree on, and it comes from Frege, and Wittgenstein quotes it three times in the Tractatus, and he says that, um, look, a, a word derives its meaning from the meaning of the sentence. Uh, in a way, you first understand what the meaning of the sentence is, and then you divide up the meaning into words. Uh, it's kind so, of a holistic approach to meaning as opposed to absolutely. atomistic approach. Exactly, exactly. That You start with sentences and then you narrow it down to words. Or in other words, a word can have meaning only in the context of a meaningful sentence. Now, this excludes combinatorial nonsense. Why? Because if you agree, like the realist, uh, that uh, is it chair is four-legged is nonsense, then you can't possibly say that its components, like is it chair, is meaningful, mm -hmm. are meaningful. Because those components think. don't have meaning in isolation. They exactly. only have meaning within the context of a sentence that has meaning. Exactly. Okay. And we agree that the sentence in which they occur isn't meaningful. Mm -hmm. So the context, this is a strong reading of the context principle, mind you. You can have weaker uh, readings, but this is the working sort of version that the anti-realist has, and that precludes combinatorial nonsense. Right. Okay, so yeah, so again, just to be clear, the realist thinks that the tractus is conveying some metaphysical truths, even though it's not stating it. And the anti-realist saying that it doesn't convey any metaphysical truths, but it, the anti-realist goes farther. The anti-realist says there is no such thing as metaphysics, right? Right, yes. So what, what exactly does the anti-realist mean by that? There is no such thing as metaphysics. Uh, th they mean, th they may agree that maybe there is metaphysics, okay. but they don't think that there are metaphysical truths that you can't state. That's what they deny. So okay. they, they think that if metaphysics exists, then, or, or if metaphysical facts exist, then you should be able to state them. Okay. So their claim that there is no metaphysics is kind of an epistemological claim as opposed to a metaphysical claim? Uh, sure, you can read it like that, yeah. Okay. Th because it would seem like it would bite its own tail. If you're saying it's a metaphysical fact that there are no metaphysical facts, <laughs> it's kind of like how relativism bites its own tail. That, that clears things up for me, though. I was just confused as to what exactly that claim right, amounts so to, the denial of metaphysics. So I don't want to frame uh, the anti-realist as some kind of uh, global anti-realist. When I, when I talk about anti-realism, I mean anti-realism in the context of the Tractatus. So what this guy say is that these things that Wittgenstein was trying to tell us uh, just don't make sense. Or whatever he said doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Now, they think that they don't... These statements in the Tractatus don't make sense because there are no such things. Right. Uh, but also because you can't find sense in them. I see, I see that you detect some kind of inconsistency there in that saying that, well, there are no metaphysical facts. That seems to be a metaphysical fact yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they don't go for that. They go right. for the nonsense part. They say that... This is nonsense. Whatever Wittgenstein says in the Tractatus is nonsense. And whatever consequences you draw from that, whatever implications you see are your implications. Mm -hmm. So, 
I think this gets to your contribution because the realist, you know, it, the tractors might be nonsense, but it, ser- it, it certainly appears like there's certainly it's, there's an apparent me- apparent meaningfulness to it, right? We can read it and understand it, yeah. and the realist makes sense of that by appealing to the notion of combinatorial nonsense. Yeah. The anti-realist doesn't have that concept at their disposal. How does the anti-realist make sense of the apparent sense of the tractus? Well, they don't really. They say, well, there's this psychological effect that words have on us, but that doesn't satisfy me. It, it, it shouldn't, right? I mean, the question is exactly why and how do words have a specific psychological effect on us? Now, there's a, a simple answer to this. Uh, you can start with this simple answer, which is to say, uh, there are words, uh, there, there are signs in the Tractatus that appear in meaningful sentences. I say object, Wittgenstein says object, this word appears in meaningful sentences, and maybe that's why uh, we get the appearance of meaning. Now, the problem, though, is that you can explain how individual words appear meaningful, but the problem is that entire sentences appear meaningful uh, when we read the Tractatus. So how is that possible? How is it possible that you can have sentences uh, be meaningful? Do, do you say that there's some kind of compositionality in apparent meaningfulness, if that, if that makes any sense? Uh, compositionality is the thought that the meaning of the sentence derives from the meaning of its words. That if you know the meanings of the words, you should be able to tell the meaning of the whole sentence. Right, but that would go against the context principle, which the anti-realist endorses. Sure, uh, right, sure. That, that's a separate problem, how to, <laughs> to reconcile compositionality and the context <clears throat> principle. But that's not even the problem. The problem is okay. that compositionality is about meaningful things, not apparently meaningful things. So does compositionality oh, okay. hold for right. apparently meaningful things? So yeah. uh, are to know, to apparently know the meaning of, of a sentence, is it necessary that you apparently know the meaning of the words? That's not clear to me, right? That's mm-hmm. the question. Okay, so what, so your original contribution to the paper is you're, you're taking the anti-realist perspective yeah. to the tractus and you're kind of uh, articulating a novel anti-realist stance. So wh- what's, your, what's your original take? So, so it's a simple idea, really. All I'm saying is that uh, nonsense can result in two ways. Uh, it can result from um, a lack of meaning. You just failed to give any meaning to what you said. If I say blah, blah, blah that I oh, true. failed to give any <laughs> meaning to that, right? That's one clear way. But there's another way in which I may fail to give a determinate meaning to what I say, which is by equivocating. I may have two meanings in my head, uh, and both may be warranted by the context of the conversation, but I can't choose which one, in a way. Uh, so I have too many meanings for a single sentence, mm-hmm. and this can also lead to nonsense. Mm-hmm. That's the first thought. And the second thought is, what kinds of things do we equivocate between when it comes to nonsense. I want to say, so think think about uh, puns. Mm-hmm. Maybe this will be helpful. In the case of puns, we don't want to say that what I, what I say is meaningless, right? Puns are meaningful things. We don't discard them as meaningless. Right. And in puns, I am equivocating between two meanings, maybe a literal and a metaphorical one. 
right? And they're perfectly acceptable. Um, so that's not nonsense. So how is it possible that equivocating can result to nonsense? Mm-hmm. Um, I introduce another thing called weak nonsense. Mm. Uh, I can talk about that more if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spell that out. Because so, so, I was a little confused by it when so I read it. Weak nonsense is not a new category. It's, it's just meaningful sentences. But they're meaningful sentences which we don't understand fully. We don't know the meaning of them fully. If I say uh, stores is no Vienna, <laughs> true. Uh, I'm not saying that stores isn't Vienna. I'm not. I'm, that's not an identity claim there. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that stores doesn't have a property that Vienna has saliently, maybe. Uh, so maybe I mean stores is not a big city or a metropolitan city or an interesting city or a European city or something like that. Uh, now here, what's going on here is that you know the categories I'm using. You know I'm using a name, stores, and I'm using a predicate, uh, Vienna. Mm-hmm. But you don't know exactly what property the predicate expresses. There's a gap there, mm-hmm. let's say. So you don't, you don't know exactly what the sentence is expressing, but it makes some sense to you. Exactly. And I want to say that this isn't nonsense. That's not where the nonsense is weak nonsense isn't nonsense at all it yeah. just appears kind of nonsensical in the sense that we haven't fully uh, determined the, all of the meanings but we have kind of determined the meanings yeah i, I think a related counter example came to mind when i was originally reading it because when you're talking about what mm-hmm. one way you know you're talking about equivocation right and how you have two different meanings uh, associated with a particular sentence or a particular word and how that can kind of lead to a kind of nonsense. But in my head, I was saying, well, no, that just means there's an indeterminate meaning, right? There's no determinate meaning because you have these two meanings which equally apply to the word. But the fact that something has an indeterminate meaning doesn't entail that that thing is nonsensical. Or does it? Uh, but I, I just didn't see how those two were one and the same thing to me. Right. So I don't want to say that nonsensicality arises from indeterminacy of meaning. I want to agree with you, and this is not what I'm suggesting. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, being unable to determine the meaning is your fault, re- really. Maybe someone else would be able to determine the right meaning. Right. Uh, now, if it's in principle impossible to determine the meaning, I don't know what to say there. Is that uh, nonsense? Maybe, but then you would still have to tell me a story for what makes it impossible to determine a meaning for a sentence. And if you tell me a story, it seems to me you're going to go down the realist line saying that there is some logical law Mm -hmm. or metaphysical law prohibiting you from choosing a meaning. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to say that. And anti-realists don't want to say that. What they do want to say is that sometimes, just like we equivocate between full sentences, like in puns, we equivocate between weak nonsense, weakly nonsensical sentences. Um, So I told you, I gave you the example of stores is now Vienna. This isn't nonsense because there's one weak sentence that I have in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what if I tell you something like Chairman Mao is rare? That, absent any context, that does seem to be sheer nonsense. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is that I can see two different interpretations for this sentence, and each of which 
seems to be weak nonsense. Mm. And I can explain how if you'd like to, but the idea is exactly that, that when you have two weakly nonsensical candidates, that's when nonsense results. Why, yeah, spell that a little more. Why are the two interpretations of that one proposition each weakly nonsensical statements? Good. So uh, let's start with rare. Rare can mean something like uh, amphibians are rare. Uh, this is known in philosophy and in semantics as a second-level predicate. That is a predicate that is about predicates. Mm. It's not about objects, it's about predicates. It tells you something about predicates, how often they appear or not. Uh, and you have the other interpretation of rare, which is uh, the steak is rare. Not not well cooked, I believe. Mm -hmm. that, that's the meaning, right? Uh, yeah, so, so. so so you have two two uh, different meanings. Now take Chairman Mao. Chairman Mao could be you know the person Chairman Mao Zedong, or it could be some kind of property that Chairman Mao had in a salient way. Just like when I say Obama is no Trump. When I say Trump there, I don't mean Obama isn't Trump the person. I mean, he doesn't have some of the qualities, the mm. properties that Trump had. Right. So Trump there stands for some kind of property. So Chairman Mao, in the sentence, Chairman Mao is rare, could also stand for that property. And not necessarily an object. Exactly. So when it does stand for a property, we don't know which property it stands for. Right. right? And that combines with the, with the first interpretation of rare. Right, where uh, I'm saying that a property isn't very frequent, it's rare. Mm -hmm. uh, the other possibility is where you have the object that's mm -hmm. determinate, but then you don't really understand what property rare expresses because it, could, it couldn't be that it's you know, not well cooked. So you understand it's a property about a person, but you don't know what property exactly. Okay. And finally, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nonsense results because you cannot find one meaning to fill in the gaps, one single meaning that will result in one single sentence. And right. you want to have one single sentence, one single meaningful uh, sentence there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So just zooming out a little bit. <laughs> there's, so there's this problem of apparent meaningfulness. I just want to make sure I have it. For the anti-realist. And... You can't use combinatorial nonsense. So you're explaining how this apparent meaningfulness can be explained in terms of sheer nonsense by appealing to weak, this concept of weakly nonsensical propositions. Yeah. It still is sheer nonsense, even though it has this apparent meaningfulness. Is this the paper you're going to be presenting? At, uh, you're going to a conference tomorrow, right? Yes, uh, I'm not presenting this paper though. I'm gonna present this in another conference that's coming up. <laughs> Are you you flying to Europe tomorrow? Yeah. Where, where's the conference? In Madrid. What paper are you presenting there? A uh, paper on names, proper names. Oh, nice. Okay, I think <laughs> I think I understand the majority of the paper now. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that we could briefly shift and just say a few words about the later Wittgenstein, sure. right? So we've been talking about the earlier Wittgenstein before he went back to philosophy. So everything we've been talking about is him when he thought he had solved all of the philosophical problems. Um, and you're dealing with that. But then he returns to Cambridge and he adopts a completely radically different approach to philosophy. And this culminates in the post-humanist 
publication of his Philosophical Investigations, which is the other main work of his. Um, and as I said before we started, that the later Wittgenstein is really the only Wittgenstein that I've had acquaintance with prior to uh, reading your article, frankly. Um, I guess, could you briefly compare and contrast the earlier with the later Wittgenstein? Sure. Let, let me say that this anti-realist reading of uh, the early Wittgenstein is an attempt to make uh, the transition from the early stage to the later stage smoother. Because the, the usual understanding is that Wittgenstein completely overturned his uh, initial stage, his early stage, in his later stage. Right. But if the interpretation we are attributing to him is correct, then it's much closer to what he says in his later uh, period. Now, what does he say uh. in the later period? Re remember how he said at the beginning that uh, it's all about logical form and the picture theory of meaning. So his thought was that uh, you can learn some things about reality just by looking at language. Right. Why? Because reality and language have a thing in common, logical form. And just by studying language, you can study logical form, which is a property that a lot of other things that aren't language have. Uh, so you use this as a lever. You use language as a lever that will get you out there in the world. Uh, now, in his later stage, he completely overturns that uh, conception. He says, instead of uh, looking at how the world sort of shapes our language, we look at how language shapes the world. And the way to do that is by saying that, no, no, it's not that a word has a meaning by standing for an object, but rather the meaning of a word is just what you do with it. Meaning is use. Meaning right? is That's use, paraphrase. exactly. And we use our terms in many different ways, and that shapes reality. Because mm -hmm. we access reality by talking about reality. Yeah. But what we use to talk about reality are things that aren't connected to reality. They're things that are connected to our activities. We, we use words to describe reality. But words are things that we use to do things. Right. So it's the later Wittgenstein that views philosophy as a kind of therapy, right? Because the, the, the main yeah. thing from Wittgenstein that really fascinates me, as I indicated to you the other day, is just this idea that a lot of these major philosophical problems that philosophers think exist, like these problems that exist out there in the world that we need to go solve, that's not actually the case. That by examining the underlying grammar of ordinary language, we can see that these so-called philosophical problems are just constructions of our language. And we don't need to solve these problems, we need to d dissolve these problems. And we can dissolve them by getting clear on just how our language works. Um, so, so is it fair to say that the later Wittgenstein, he's, he's moving towards ordinary language as opposed to logical, to, to logical form? Right, exactly. That's absolutely fair uh, in the sense that if you attend to the uses yeah. that our terms have, instead of trying to find out what they stand for, you're going to realize that it's, it's hard to define your terms as you'd like to, in terms of sufficient and necessary conditions. He has the example of a game, right? If I, language games. Uh, right, he uses that to, to talk about language games later on, but before he even talks about language games, uh, he uses the term game itself. Mm. And he says, uh, how would you define a game? 
Right. You can't find a single thing that each and every game has in common. Mm. You can't do that. There isn't a thing. Yet, even though there is an absence of an essential feature, uh, we're still able to tell what is a game and what isn't. Right. And we're perfectly able to, to use the term appropriately and so on. This How is where does that, that happen? Yeah. Well, you should forget about what philosophers have been doing, which is to find the essence of a thing. Just attend to the necessary and sufficient conditions, baby. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You should leave that behind. You should content yourself with just family resemblances, as he calls them. Just a, yeah. a loose network of similarities that things that uh, fall under a term have in common, and that's all. There's and that, once you realize that, once you, you get to that picture of uh, um, how language works, it can dissolve a lot of problems such as what is language and what is meaning. We don't care about the term game, which is pretty ordinary, but we do care about the term truth. Yeah. Is there one thing that all true sentences have in common? Maybe not, is Wittgenstein's suggestion. Mm. Right, so there are all kinds of different games. There's basketball, that's a game. Monopoly... That's a game. Is there one definition that we can put forth that unites all these things that we call games? No, but they're related. They resemble each other in different ways. And we, we can apply that concept of family resemblance to other important issues in philosophy. Yeah, he said, that's a, it's like a, it's a revolutionary idea. It's a, it's a good idea because I feel like it's just, uh, it's undistracting philosophers, you know, that are so set on providing necessary and sufficient conditions. Yeah. It's it's precisely so. If you if you go out there in the wild, in the world, and talk to non-philosophers about these things and tell them, well, there isn't anything that all games have in common, they wouldn't care, and they would think, yeah, like just, so what? And they would think that you're saying something very commonsensical. Yeah. So uh, Wittgenstein's. <laughs> Ideas. <laughs> this one or the beetle uh, example. I don't know if you the beetle in the box example. Uh, all of these are powerful against the backdrop of a very rigid philosophical tradition that he was fighting against. But not they're not revolutionary to common people. He was right. trying to bring philosophy back to, to common sense. All the philosophers are just going insane, locked in the ivory tower, and I feel mm -hmm. like he just unlocked the doors and let them <laughs> let them out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, so again, just to remind the listeners who might be wondering, why are we droning on and on about the thoughts of this one particular philosopher? Mm -hmm. We're talking about, again, arguably the most important philosopher of the past 100 years. I mean, he's up there, right? I'm not convinced, but yeah. I'm not some, convinced. Some, some I wanted to get there too, because the <laughs> other day when I mentioned my interest in Wittgenstein, you said that you used to be a Wittgensteinian or you mm. used to believe in a lot of his ideas, but now you think that yeah. he was largely wrong. Do, do you think that later Wittgenstein was largely wrong, early Wittgenstein was largely wrong, or just all Wittgenstein should be? Oh, early Wittgenstein was definitely wrong. Yeah, I mean, he himself realized that. I mean, he says at the end of the book that, oh, by the way, everything I said is nonsense. He says it. Right. And then, and then right. when he goes back to Cambridge, he repudiates the book. So, uh, you know, uh, I think there is widespread agreement that, that the early stage. Uh, don't get me wrong. It was very important for certain developments in logic and formal stuff. Sure. But... Uh, Except for that, I don't think it's a, it's a major work of philosophy. Uh, now, mm. the later Wittgenstein certainly has something to it. Uh, there, there, there's something valuable 
and bringing attention to ordinary facts about language, how people use language. Um, and that created probably a whole field in, in linguistics, pragmatics. Uh, but that would happen, I feel, anyway. Um, so I don't think he made any essential contributions or, or uh, contributions that no one could possibly come to if Wittgenstein hadn't existed. That's one thing. The other is okay. me methodological worries. Methodology to me matters because Wittgenstein is never clear about anything. People are still trying to understand what the private language argument was, for example. And uh, that's bad. Uh, that's bad because probably he was not clear himself. But he had, he had some rationale behind his unclear methodology, right? Like, he was unclear on oh, yeah. purpose. Right. Uh, or, yeah, that's what a lot of people say, that you shouldn't do methodological philosophy. Uh, right. That itself, though, needs a methodology. What, what, <laughs> it, to argue for that, you would have to have... To argue in a... In a way that satisfies those who do want a methodology. So you would have to argue methodologically. He never did that. Mm -hmm. uh, so Yeah, if you read Wittgenstein, it's almost impenetrable. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's a flaw. Okay. Okay, so problems with his methodology, and if he hadn't existed, someone else would have come along and articulated roughly the same ideas. Yeah, especially the later Wittgenstein, Wittgensteinian ideas, yeah. They, they were sort of in the air. If you read people like, uh, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, I forget, another Cambridge guy who died. Uh, J.L. Austin? No, no, no. Uh, although J.L. Austin is very much mm. in that tradition. I mean, the, yeah. the whole Oxford uh, ordinary language yeah. philosophy was inspired by Wittgenstein. <coughs> so I'm not sure if I have the right to say that he, uh, that, that would have happened if Wittgenstein hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. uh, Gilbert Ryle? No, no, there's another Cambridge guy. I, I don't remember his name. I'm, I'm yeah. blanking that right now but but there there was another guy who is sort of a pragmatist early pragmatist cambridge pragmatist guy uh the pragmatists in the u.s were writing at the same time so uh these ideas were in the air mm -hmm. i think okay. although wittgenstein he wasn't a pragmatist but he was close to that paradigm so who are some of your favorite philosophers or which philosophers do you regard as extremely influential uh, certainly Kripke would be a tremendously important figure, both in formal philosophy and in not-so-formal philosophy. He has contributions in pretty much anything. Uh, likewise, Putnam, Hilary Putnam, uh, another very important philosopher. David Lewis as well, uh, although more narrowly he didn't have such a big breadth, uh, but he was very important. And he was I like David Lewis a lot. A tremendously good writer as well. Yeah, very, very clear. Very clear, Very clear. And, and, and charismatic. He was not just clear. You know, yeah. you read his papers and you end up <laughs> in the middle of the paper and you feel trapped in, in a good way in accepting his position. He has trapped you without you realizing it. It feels like magic to read some of his papers. Oh, that's really a good way of putting it. Yeah. And he has some ostensibly crazy positions. I mean, moral oh, realism. Sure. <laughs> Only he could pull that off. Only know? he could pull that off. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Saul Kripke, by the way, is still alive for the listeners. Yeah. I think he's teaching at City University of New York yeah, exactly. nowadays. Um, 
he was another one of those, if I'm not mistaken, kind of uh, like child genius prodigies, right? Didn't, oh, yeah. He made like landmark contributions. We're talking about a human being that made landmark contributions to logic when he was like 17 yeah, or something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. It's crazy. He knew calculus at a very young age as well. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, and, and interestingly, he doesn't even have a PhD. Oh yeah, he doesn't even have a PhD. <laughs> uh, that's from the days when in Princeton there was this tradition of, uh, uh, what are they called, fellows, something like that. So they would hire one person for many years as a fellow and they, you didn't need to have a PhD for that. But uh, obviously they hired only the best of the best or something like that. And Kripke was one of them. And he became f a faculty member at Princeton after that. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you wanted to bring under the table? No, that, that was that was all. <laughs> I cool. Said a lot. <laughs> hopefully this uh, hopefully this podcast wasn't sheer nonsense, <laughs> only combinatorial nonsense. <laughs> uh, thank you, man. Uh, I, I learned this is very educational for me. I learned a lot. Uh, I appreciate you doing this. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely.